1990, famed Spanish novelist Eduardo Mendoza released No Word from Gerb, a novel about a pair of aliens exploring Barcelona, Spain in the lead-up to the 1992 Olympics. This deaf novel explores the intricacies of human life and just how strange we are as a species, with a wonderful wit and a great humor. For example, the initial explorer, Gerb, assumes the form of Madonna to blend in with the local crowd. The unnamed narrator goes in search of his friend and struggles to get the hang of being human. He forgets that he's supposed to breathe. He's given a coin and assumes he must swallow it. At a restaurant, when asked what he wants to drink, he asks for the most popular human liquid, urine. While the novel is fun, it is full of wonderful observations as well, like the characterization of class. Quote, Amongst other categories, human beings are apparently divided into rich and poor. This is a division to which they attach huge importance without knowing why. The fundamental difference between rich and poor seems to be this. The rich, wherever they go, do not pay, even though they acquire and consume as much as they like. The poor, on the other hand, pay through the nose. Like the novel, a similar story would play out in Brazil, in Virginia. It wasn't a man or an animal. It was something different. That is the description given by Katia Andrade Xavier, one of three young women who had a terrifying encounter with a mysterious creature while cutting through an empty lot on their way home. Word of their encounter would soon spread, and combined with stories of unexplained military activity at a local hospital, to emerge as a complete narrative of a UFO crash, complete with the recovery of multiple occupants by the Brazilian military and subsequent cover-up. Today, Varginha, an inland agricultural and industrial town, is famous for its UFO encounter. The town boasts a brightly lit water tower in the shape of a flying saucer, complete with the statue of an honest-to-goodness little green man, plump and smiling, hanging out in a small shelter next to it. There was even a UFO conference in Virginia in 2004. It may surprise you to learn, but probably not, that the Virginia incident didn't include a flying saucer or a little green man. The craft was said to be cigar-shaped, recalling the chupas we heard about in Calaris and elsewhere. The creature, or creatures, as we will come to find, were thin and brown, with large heads and red eyes. Or there was no craft at all, and the three women encountered a mentally ill homeless man in the vacant lot. And EMTs transported a pregnant woman with dwarfism to the hospital for emergency treatment, accompanied by her husband, who also had dwarfism. And these separate events mixed and combined in the retelling, turned into a story of a crashed UFO, injured occupants, treatment at a local hospital, and a government cover-up. My name is Rob Christofferson, and this is Episode 8 of the Our Strange Skies Podcast.
Our story starts on January 13th, 1996, around 1.30 a.m., when an object was reportedly tracked on radar by NORAD and reported to Syndacta, a part of the Brazilian military which is responsible for all military and civilian air traffic control over the country. Around 2 a.m. that same night, residents of Virginia heard a loud explosion. A local lawyer saw a large fire and smoke coming from a hill just outside of town. She called the fire department and was surprised when they did not answer. Moments later, she heard the unmistakable sirens of both the fire and the police, and she assumed that they were already on their way. However, she was surprised to see that they were not alone. She saw three large trucks, clearly from the military, headed towards the fire and smoke. In reflecting on the incident later, she remarked how she was surprised that they had arrived so fast. Meanwhile, local police and firefighters, who were themselves part of the military, arrived on. As local residents arrived, they taped off the area and prevented anyone from approaching the source of the fire. On January 20th, just after midnight and 10 miles south of Virginia, on the farm of Eureka and Oralina de Freitas, Oralina was in bed when she was startled by their animals, which were in a state of panic in their pens. She got out of bed and went over to a window. She could see a long cylindrical chupa, about the size of a bus, hovering just above the cattle. She called out to Eureka, who was downstairs watching television, who went to a window and saw the chupa as well. The two watched it for around 40 minutes as it flew, noticing that it did not fly smoothly, and they speculated that it was damaged in some way. The object seemed to be surrounded in a sort of fog, which was thick enough to prevent Oralina from observing even basic details, such as the color of the object, though she thought it was gray. For reasons that are unclear, Eureka went out of the house towards both the chupa and the animals, and as he did so, was struck by a beam of light from the chupa. After a moment, the beam disappeared and the chupa departed in the direction of Virginia. But Eureka was left with red marks on his chest and legs, which were visible several days later. The afternoon after Eureka and Oralina's harrowing encounter, the police and fire department began receiving calls from residents of Virginia that a strange creature was seen. No one got a good look at it, but what was reported would be consistent with what would be seen by the three young women, ages 14 to 21, that afternoon. Liliane de Fatima Silva her sister Valkyria Apercadia Silva and their friend Katia Andrade Xavier were walking through a vacant lot towards the De Silva home when they saw a creature which Lillianne would later describe as the ugliest thing I have ever seen hunched over a nearby tree just 16 feet away from them. The creature was humanoid with a large head, huge red eyes and hairless with brownish red skin. Three protrusions came out of the top of its head, 
and the three young women noticed a pungent, ammonia-like stench in the air. As they watched the creature, its head bobbed oddly, as if dizzy and unsteady. But when it looked in their direction, the three young women turned and ran for the De Silva home. The three told Lillianne and Valkyria's mother that they had seen a devil, which their mother did not believe. However, seeing that the young women were clearly shaken by what they had encountered, joined the three young women as they walked back to the location. By the time they arrived, the creature was gone, though the mother did note odd triangular indentations in the ground that appeared to be footprints, and could smell the ammonia-like odor which would linger with her for days. News of the odd encounter would spread like wildfire throughout Virginia and the surrounding area in the next few hours. Later that day, a massive thunderstorm rolled through Virginia. Dr. Layla Cabral, a biologist at the Virginia Zoo, became worried for the animals under her care, and so, in spite of the driving rain, left her home and went to the zoo. When she arrived, one of the security guards told her that firemen had come by with a strange animal which they couldn't show to him, but only to Dr. Cabral. She remarked that if it was important, they would come back. The firemen did not return, and Dr. Cabral forgot all about the strange occurrence until she later heard about the sighting of the strange creature. While Dr. Cabral was waiting for the firemen to return, two military police officers were patrolling the same street where the three young women had their sighting when they saw a strange creature of their own. They exited their car and approached the creature, which seemed to be injured or at least acting in a confused manner. Without a struggle, they were able to coax the creature into their patrol car. Officer Marco Eli Cheriz held the creature on his lap and put his arm around it as they drove to the hospital. When they arrived, the military put the hospital on lockdown. A local surgeon was brought in to examine the creature, which seemed to have a severely injured leg. Prior to his arrival, and even prior to his entry into the operating room itself, the surgeon was told nothing about his otherworldly patient. The surgeon was reluctant to operate without any preparation, but was told by the military that he had no choice, and guards were placed at the door of the operating room. He was told that he could not leave until he had done everything he could to save his patient, and with reluctance he complied. When he entered the operating room, the creature was laying on the table, covered by a sheet. X-rays had been performed, and when the surgeon examined them, he noted that the bones in the legs were brittle, and that the patient seemed to be suffering from osteoporosis. When he drew back the sheet, he could finally see his patient fully. It was only then that he realized he would not be operating on a human. Despite his shock, he did as he was asked, and after applying a local anesthetic, cut into the creature's leg to expose the bone, which he said as best he could. He observed that, despite having been told that the injury occurred recently, the bone appeared to be already in the process of healing. As he operated, the creature was fully conscious, though it did not struggle during the procedure. And when he made eye contact with the creature, 
He described it as if he was being hit in the head with a hammer. It was so intense that he would have migraine headaches for weeks afterwards. He also described what he called thoughtograms being sent directly into his head, as if the creature were somehow transferring information directly into the surgeon's brain. The surgeon claimed that the creature felt sorry for the human race, as if people could heal injuries like this without the need for specialized surgeons or even hospitals. But that knowledge is locked away from the human race because of our detachment from our spiritual selves. If this were the case, it is unclear why the creature was unable to heal itself and needed to be operated upon. Having done what he could, the surgeon sutured the wound and left the operating room. What vital signs they could monitor appeared to be stable, and the surgeon thought he had saved the creature's life. He later saw the creature being loaded into a military truck to be taken to another hospital, where it stayed most of the next day, before returning to the same hospital where the surgery had been performed. The reason for the move is unclear. Though the surgeon had no further contact with the creature, he was told that the creature had died, and he witnessed three military trucks pull up, and a child-sized coffin was loaded into each. He was told that the creature was in one of the coffins, though he did not know which, and he looked on as the trucks departed in different directions. The story would only get weirder from here. On February 12th, Officer Cherise was brought into a local hospital with severe pain in his lower back. He had been in good health until a few days prior, and the pain had worsened each day. Doctors performed tests and found signs of a serious infection. He was observed to have a urinary tract infection, mild pneumonia, and a small abscess in his left armpit. He was admitted to the hospital and given antibiotics, but by the next day, his symptoms had worsened, and he seemed to be suffering from blood poisoning. He was taken to the hospital's intensive care unit, but despite the best efforts of the medical staff, his condition continued to worsen. He died just a few hours after being admitted. The rapid onset of the infections, all seemingly separate, puzzled the doctors. Even in patients with severely compromised immune systems, such a rapid decline is nearly impossible, and Officer Cherise was healthy until a few days before. This would not be the last death potentially associated with this odd incident, though it would be the last human death. Between Officer Cherise's death in February and the end of April, several animals at the local zoo would die from a similar, though unexplained, ailment. The animals, among them ocelots, tapirs, and deer, were all found to have blackened mucus in the stomach and intestines despite eating different diets and being in different parts of the zoo. Dr. Cabral, who would go on to become the director of the zoo, could offer no explanation, though she couldn't help but speculate that it was related to the mysterious creature or creatures that had been seen in Virginia. In late May, the three young women and their mother were visited by several men wearing suits and dark sunglasses. The four women were instructed to lie about their experiences and claim that they hadn't actually seen anything. The mysterious men even attempted to bribe their silence, 
but the mother refused. The women became scared. They could start a new life somewhere else with the money, but they believed in taking the moral high ground. Though investigations, accusations of cover-ups, and subsequent denials would continue for years, it is here that the incident ends. No further sightings of the creature or creatures have occurred, and we're left with the only questions. Fortunately, the Brazilian government has given us the answers on just what occurred. There was no chupa tracked on radar, and there was no crash. The three young women saw a deformed homeless man known to the locals as Mudinho. No otherworldly creature was taken to the hospital. It was just a pregnant woman with dwarfism that they transported there. And anyone who says different is just making things up. <coughs> yep, that's exactly what happened. <coughs> Sorry, that went down bad. Despite this highly credible and not at all ridiculous explanation, some folks have sought alternate explanations. And it is here that it truly earns its reputation as the Brazilian Roswell, though not for the reasons that we would like. Much of the story unfolds through information from second or even third-hand witnesses. As UFO researcher Kevin Randall put it, we have been unable to verify much of anything when it comes to details beyond that of the three young women who have been interviewed numerous times since. Author Nick Pope speculates that the part about NORAD and Syndacta could contain a kernel of truth in that perhaps a satellite or a piece of space debris was tracked and crashed near Virginia, sparking the firefighting efforts as well as the secrecy from the military. A variation on this theory is that, instead of a satellite or piece of space debris, a piloted U.S. or Soviet military aircraft crashed near Virginia, and that at least one of the crew members survived the crash, who was taken to a local hospital for treatment. Though there is no evidence to corroborate this, it could potentially explain some of the more puzzling aspects reported by witnesses, such as the presence of Americans at the crash site, parts of its hospital being locked down by the military, contact between NORAD and Syndacta, and the willingness of the government to let absurd explanations linger. It doesn't explain the sightings of odd creatures, in particular that of the three young women, who, at a minimum, clearly believe that they had had an inexplicable encounter, and who have maintained their account in the face of pressure to either say that they were mistaken or that it was all a hoax. In the end, just like with Roswell, what conclusions can be drawn from the Virginia incident come down to what sources you consider trustworthy. Did a series of mundane events come together to produce a kind of mass hysteria, or did something inexplicable really happen in Virginia? We may never know. This episode was written by the OSIC's lead researcher, Rory and includes research from OSIC member Amber Keller, as well as Rory. For the month of October, we're doing something a little special around here. I will be paying tribute to the influential forces on my weird life, mainly my home, the Adirondacks, and the show Unsolved Mysteries. You can expect some UFOs, some cryptids, a few ghosts, a tiny bit of murder, 
and fun roundtables featuring some of your favorite podcasters. If you'd like to support the show, please consider leaving us a rating and review on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. Another way you can support the show is by becoming a patron. Patrons receive all sorts of bonus audio, including our Meltdown series and early releases of the regular episodes when available. You can head on over to patreon.com slash ourstrangeskies or ourstrangeskies.com to find out how to become a patron. Speaking of our website, you can find all of our episodes over there and show notes, as well as our blog and links to our social media profiles and Tee Public Store. Our theme song was composed by Big Cats, with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. And our logo and web design is by the great Desdemona. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies. We're on the streets of Virginia. In Gray We Trust.